All right, welcome to the White Collar Crimes Podcast. Great to have you back aboard. I am Ryan Horn, the host. Pretty good things going on. Just celebrated recently uh, another trip around the sun. That's always good. Uh, have a nice birthday. Hope the weather is nice where you are. Hope you've enjoyed our recent podcast, having guests. And if you want to be a guest, I always say at the end of the show, and will again, please contact me to be on here. Be glad to have you. Now, this episode will be a little bit like it's school time now starting and classes to teach. And this is going to be kind of in that frame of uh, episode here where it's going to be like more educational purpose. When you uh, tune in for this one, you're going to be more like... As you've tuned in here, you're going to be more like you're in one of my classes that I teach at uh, at the college level. So this is going to be about the man that's actually considered to be kind of the founder of white-collar crime. He's credited as uh, the father of it, and not in an offender sense, but in the sense of actually turning it into a study of crime to be studied, like a science, uh, white-collar crime, that is, and... That is a man by the name of Edwin H. Sutherland, and he was a University of Indiana, which is, Indiana's right next door to me, and he was a University of Indiana sociologist, and he actually coined this term all the way back in 1939, the term white-collar crime. And he did this in the presidential address to the American Sociological Society in Philadelphia. Again, he was a sociologist which a lot of sociologists study crime, and I would dare say at your local university, uh, most, if not close to most, the professors that you have there probably have, that they're teaching criminology and criminal justice probably have sociology backgrounds. Uh, Don't necessarily agree that gives the best perspective in the study of crime, but nonetheless, it is very much where most of them have their backgrounds in. And he was the president of this association, and this is when he brought it to light, so to speak, about looking at crimes that he considered were committed by the elites and for financial gain, and and that these people were every bit as much as criminals and even dangerous to society as the common street criminals, which at that time had gotten all of the focus on the study of crime on an academic and intellectual level. Now, he was noted, and he noted the difference uh, between white-collar offenders and street criminals at that time. The convention, he announces this, it's in Philadelphia, and it's a big ordeal at the time because nobody had really given this much thought, at least on an academic level, and that's what he did. He is the one, again, that said these uh, offenders are... Criminals as well, though there are differences that he notes to, compared to street criminals. But nonetheless, he notes that their activities are crimes and are very harmful to their victims and society as a whole. Now, one thing he noted that was different than most of the street criminals at the time, and you got to remember this is in 1939, a lot going on. World War II is getting ready to start in Europe. You are in the throes of the Great Depression at this point. The nation at this point was ravaged by poverty and high unemployment and things like that. Uh, So criminologists and society in general is taking a little bit different look of how people are offending. And he noted that white-collar offenders were not often reared and brought up or even motivated by poverty like 
a lot of street criminals are. A lot of street criminals, especially at this time, probably committed their acts simply out of desperation or survival. Again, very harsh economic times at this time, not only in the United States, but even really throughout the world. As I said, Europe was in the beginning and preparing for war in the early stages of World War II. So it's a very volatile time to be alive. And at that time, noted a lot of crimes were committed probably out of financial survival. And most of these offenders, and it's even still true today when you're talking about street crime, most of them come from at least somewhat disadvantaged backgrounds. Again, not all. And not all white-collar criminals come from middle-class or upper backgrounds. There are some that come from lower-class backgrounds that later rise the ranks to, say, a corporation or something and may commit a financial crime or whatnot. But again, overall, mostly that was one of the key differences he noted from the beginning was that street criminals oftentimes were not reared in poverty at the high level that uh, white-collar criminals were. Now, this brought a major turnabout in the field of criminology. And 10 years later, in 1949, he introduced his theories and writings into his publication, and it's simply just called White Collar Crime. Now, again, you got to understand, in 1949, that term had only been around about 10 years. We hear it a lot now. Obviously, it's the overlying theme of this entire podcast, not just the title of the podcast, but that's what we focus on in here. And... Really, all these years later, it's still not getting on an academic or even in a societal, in in the media world that we live in, it's still not getting the level of focus and attention that street crime gets or violent crime gets or anything like that, even though we've seen multiple examples on this podcast where we've shown you example after example of white-collar crimes that have turned violent and deadly to their victims, and sometimes in massive levels that we talked about, like the asbestos case, in the mine there with uh, W.C. Grace, back in the early days of this podcast, that caused a lot of harm, much more than your common street crime ever could. But nonetheless, it still doesn't get attention. And in 1949, he does put out this publication, giving it white-collar crime, really kind of its first official academic publication. And other criminologists and sociologists at the time did start to rise up and take note that the overall harm and financial ruin white-collar offenders and white-collar criminals were causing society. Because again, at this time, and it's you know not a whole lot different now, the majority of the attention was just on your common poor street criminal. And after Sutherland's work, people were rising up, and he uh, people began to see that he, had, he was on to something here because these are offenders that are committing acts that are harmful to society, and it's often completely motivated for financial gain. Now, originally, Sutherland felt that the term white-collar referred only to business managers and executives, and I've talked about this before. That was where he differs from a lot of criminologists now about just what is white-collar crime and how, how do we define it, because A thing to note here, Sutherland did not have a very broad definition of it like we do today. He felt that white-collar crimes could only be committed by somebody of wealth and privilege and power. So a simple hustle on the street or whatever to a scam by just an ordinary Joe, an ordinary bloke, that in his opinion was not white-collar crime. That person had to have status. They had to have wealth, privilege, power, something to that effect. And he narrowly kind of 
noted his uh, findings and his theories to be on business executives and managers and, and people in positions of authority somewhat. And he felt that some violators and some violations from these corporate officers easily rivaled that of your common career street criminals. And we've made that case multiple times on this podcast and we'll continue to. And as I said a little bit ago, with we've seen with W.C. Grace, we've seen the Peanut Corporation of America, cases where sometimes these white-collar criminal acts become deadly. So it's not just street crime that kills victims. Oftentimes, white-collar crime victims, in the most extreme sense, pay for their lives. Most of the time, they pay financially and suffer financial ruin. But as, again, we've pointed out multiple times, you can go back and hear some of the podcasts that we've done throughout the time it's existed, and we've covered several of them where it's not pretty, and sometimes this white-collar crime turns deadly and violent, and that's that's the sad extreme end of it, but it is a reality when it comes to white-collar crime, and Sutherland felt that many of these violations, and again, this is in the 30s and 40s, when corporation officials could get away with a lot more abuse. I mean, now you do have some labor laws, you do have some federal labor laws and things that are in effect now to prevent a lot of things, and you have a lot of regulatory agencies that can somewhat try to keep things in check that you did not have at this time, at least not as prevalent as it probably is now. So it was much easier at that time probably for people in positions like that, even then, even more so easier then to abuse these positions than they can now. So it's likely, and no doubt it has, the qualification of what is a white-collar criminal has expanded. And Sutherland touched on something that did change the field of criminology forever. And some of you that have studied criminal justice at college or university, you may be familiar with another theory of his. It's one I've always liked. He is famous for a theory called differential association theory, which is what I call the birds of a feather theory. That simply meant that you are who you hang out with. You, you hang out with criminals. You're going to learn criminal ways and become a criminal. That was basically Southern's basic theory, and it's probably pretty similar to what a lot of our moms and dads and grandparents and everything taught us. If you run around with hoodlums, you're going to become a hoodlum. That was stressed to me all the time growing up, especially from my mom and my grandmother. And uh, it's kind of really that basic theory that he put out there on that. So he's not just famous for white-collar crime, but he is famous too. You can do a little research and look into differential association theory. As I said, it's just really kind of a birds of a the- uh, feather uh, theory if you hang out with criminals, then there's a good chance you will become a criminal. Now, his theory kind of would dominate. Again, we're talking, he coined this term in 1939, puts out his publication on the subject about 10 years later, and that stayed pretty much the belief and definition of what is white-collar crime and who is a white-collar criminal. But that did expand a little bit and change in the early 70s, a man by the last name of Ederholtz, he expanded this definition and he felt that in order to be a white-collar criminal or commit a white-collar crime, you did not have to be a business executive or a rich, powerful guy. Uh, An average Joe, an average bloke out there, if it's motivated by finances and money, he felt that would qualify somebody to be a white-collar criminal or commit a white-collar offense. He felt status was not as important as the act itself. Now, I would say 
you have two schools here of thought. You have Sutherland's and you have the Ederholtz. When I would say by far today, most criminologists and people just in general probably accept Ederholtz's version of it where it's a very expansive and a lot of people can qualify for it. I'm kind of in that school of thought too, although I do definitely respect Sutherland's work on what he did in this regard. But it is important to note that it has expanded and since the early 70s, we're talking, you know, 50 years here now, it has expanded a lot in in this definition and it's a much bigger tent in what will qualify as a white collar offense or for somebody to qualify as a white collar criminal. Well, Ederholtz also felt that tax evasion, forgery, fraud, all of these are white-collar crimes regardless of status. So if the lady that has the working or middle-class salary as the uh, water department or city clerk, we've done a couple cases of that where they've been guilty of embezzlement, in his opinion, even though they were just uh, rank-and-file employees and did not make great money at that, in his definition, that's a white-collar crime. Committing some type of fraud, in his opinion, was a white-collar crime. Again, tax evasion, of course, we've covered multiple cases on here. That's been one of the big things that's brought white-collar criminals to prison probably faster than just about anything. It seems like the tax man. So all of these things, regardless of that person's status, if they had a motivation to commit these offenses for financial gain of some type, according to Adderholtz, that's a white-collar crime, and they are a white-collar criminal. Now, he also felt that white-collar crimes that involve violence, such as environmental crimes, again, you go back and see the W.C. Grace, that's in the early days of this podcast, or I'd also recommend the Peanut Corporation of America podcast episodes. Those are from a while back, but definitely check those out. Those are examples when the uh, crimes became violent. We also did one on the Flint, Michigan water scandal that a lot of you probably remember. It wasn't just a few years back. And he said that when they cause violence like that, these should be, these, especially these violent crimes, a lot of times that involve environmental cases, these should be included in white-collar crime cases. So to him, it wasn't just about money. It could also involve violence. And again, we've covered a lot of cases on this podcast that do meet his definition on both counts. And yes, sometimes, unfortunately, as I said, white-collar criminals do either intentionally or through their negligence, negligence cause a lot of acts of violence. And these two schools of thought, they're still in the, they still remain today. They still are where we are today as far as, as a, uh, a society and as an academic field that studies crime and criminology. We're still in these two schools of thought. And they're, that's the basic overlay, I think, that you can have when you're talking about white-collar crime, I don't know if anybody will be able to expand anything differently off this. I think you'll just have two different schools of thoughts. And it's interesting, the classes I teach, I would say it's probably two to one in the Ederholt school, but I do have some that kind of still agree with uh, Sutherland, that it still has to be somebody of wealth and status and privilege that can commit this, that just your average broke guy down the street is not a white-collar criminal. You know, like I said, I'm kind of more in the Ederholtz school of things, but I certainly can see from the Sutherland perspective too. Now, Ederholtz did have an advantage in available data. By this time, technology is a little better. We're collecting a little bit better data. By the early 70s, a lot more colleges and universities have criminal justice programs. That was not so much the case 
in the 30s and 40s. As I said, Sutherland himself was a sociologist, and at that time, crime was not considered and studied as much on a scientific basis like it was beginning in the 70s up till now. So he did have, I think, in, in my opinion, much better opportunities with the data and things like that that he had uh, compared to Sutherland. Because at that time, especially statistics on white-collar crime, they were non-existent because nobody recognized white-collar crime until Sutherland brought this out to be looked at. But I still say without, with, not without the work of Sutherland, we would not be where we're at today. This podcast would not exist. You would not have the American Greed Show that's become very popular over the years. Stacy Keats, the actor, has narrated for years and years. And I, I would not have been able to study it further like I did. I, as I said, I wrote my thesis on this subject. And it's always been a subject now that's fascinated me ever since. And uh, without his work, I have no doubt, we never would have reached that point where we have to study it from an academic standpoint like we do now. And for it to actually be included in the criminal statistics and to be considered actual criminal acts and these folks that do these things to be considered criminals by our courts and our criminal justice system. It's a major accomplishment to get there, and I have no doubt without the work of Sutherland, this never would have happened, I don't think. I don't think you would have had an Ederholtz if it hadn't been for Sutherland. Now, Sutherland was simply concerned with people who use their positions to break the law and enrich themselves. That's basically what he considered a white-collar criminal or a white-collar crime. Now, some wonder, because Sutherland was supposedly brought up in just a middle-class Protestant Midwest family. His father was supposedly a college professor also, a lot of Baptist colleges and universities. And some wonder how that might have influenced his views on crime and behavior and things like that. Supposedly, he wasn't a practicing Protestant or anything later on in his life, or they said he also was known to enjoy an adult beverage or two here and there. He certainly wasn't a teetotaler, but they do think this background and the rearing that he had like this did definitely affect his views on crime and morality and ultimately impacted his work. Who knows, but Let's face it, all of us are impacted a lot of times by what we are brought up and raised in. It does set our values and norms and whatnot for the future that we develop as an older adult. So who knows, but it most likely did kind of affect his idea and gave him a definitely a different moralistic view on the world than he may not have had had he been raised otherwise. So criminologists, like I said, they have expanded and debated on these two theories. We have the Sutherland and Ederholtz schools of thought. And I'm going to put a poll out here. Please check this out. I want to hear your views on there, which schools of thought you subscribe to. And there'll be a poll you can check out on Spotify, where we have this at, or Apple, wherever you're happen to listen to this. Just check it out on our page and be sure, because I'd be curious to see what schools of thought we have out here listening for this. Because it can't be understated the contributions both of these men have made to study in that and wanted to recognize that here, especially Sutherland, because he is kind of the father and founder of this school of thought. So I would be very curious to see what you all have out there as well. So please check that out and join the poll. I would love to have you guys all do that and give me really good background idea of who we are having out here just listening to us. And we thank you that you did listen to us and hope you'll join us again next week. And as always, check out our Facebook page, the White Collar Crime Podcast. Like it, follow it for updates. 
And like us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Please give us that old five-star review. We really need that this day and age. Keep listening to us. We're growing. We appreciate it. We are so thankful to have you in the ratings. Check out my audio book, The Howard Hawks One. It's out for libraries right now. It will be out to you, the general public, anytime now. We'll be making an announcement. Check out my website if you're ever in need of any voiceover work, ryan-horn.com. Do audio books and all types of other narrations. And as I said at the beginning, would love to have you as a guest. Or if you've got an idea for a podcast episode, either one, email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. And always please check out your local pet shelter to adopt your next best friend because they uh, will enrich your lives unlike anything that you've ever seen before. So we're so thankful that you are out there. Please take action and avoid being a victim yourself. Watch out for your friends and family, especially the elderly, because as I say all the time on here, they are the most often targeted for scams and white-collar crimes, so definitely stay alert and stay on them. And as always, thank you for being a part of this. God bless. Look forward to seeing you all next week.